If you have a Bible, I would uh, love for you to join me on one of the first pages in the table of contents. You can find that. I want to help everybody get to where we're going because it's Scripture that matters. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, ready for every good work. So just hear that again. All Scripture is profitable. So you're about to do one of the most profitable things you can do for your life. You're going to read Scripture. But we want to have a certain disposition towards His Word. We want to trust together that what we read is profitable, but then it does some things. And you've got to be willing to accept all of these things. Teaching, rebuke, 2024, nobody likes to be rebuked, but sometimes if we're headed in the wrong direction, the most loving thing God can do is give us a strong rebuke. I know I do that for my children, man. If they run out on the road, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to shout at them a little bit in a, in a loving way. You know, stop. Some of you are going to hear that today from God. He's going to say, you're headed in a direction. You need to stop. And I want you to know when you hear that, you're hearing that because God loves you. So all scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You're dearly loved of God, and He loves you enough to rebuke you, and He also loves you enough to train you, to help you, to teach you. I think about it this way, you know, this, this week, our youngest, Jenna, she will be two in March, and uh, she has been a little bit under the weather, right? She's got that head cold 2024 that many of you have been blessed with in the recent weeks. So, so um, she has had a strong preference for somebody in our house this week not feeling well. Does anybody want to venture a guess who that is? Mama, that's right. She's not against me. She's been polite to me, but not feeling well, she has a preference for mom because there's nobody like mom. Mom's going to hold, love, nurture, forbear. That's probably the Bible word for it. Mom's been very forbearing this week. So children really do need two things. Number one, if you think about a child being welcomed in in love and nurturing. Got to have that. At the same time, a child at some point needs to be turned around and going to be have somebody say, you're going to have to face the world now. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Welcomed in and at some point, these, these things go, go together. It's not like one and then another. They're, they're always happening all the time, both of them. At my house, I want my children to know you've always got a place with me. You're always going to uh, be welcomed right in. But I also need you to know God's made you in such a way that you're going to face the world. And I want to exhort you how to do that. And that's also true for us as God's children. He wants you to know you are welcomed in. You are loved. You are cared for. You are dearly loved but also God's going to equip you to face the world. You do need both, and they do go together, right? So if, if on one hand all a child ever receives, as you understand what I mean, they go together or they're not uh, authentic in what they're purposing to do. You know, like Paul says to the Thessalonians, I, I nurtured you like a nursing mom, but I exhorted you like a dad, right? He's saying you need, you need both. So uh, if all I ever receive is, these things are true, God, God loves you, God forgives you, God redeems you, all those things are true. But you haven't just been saved from something, you've also been saved for something. 
to be a bold witness in the world, but that bold witness in the world is rooted in his love and care for you, right? So today in the sermon, we're going to have a profitable time together, but I need you to know there's going to be both of those. The loving grace of God, it's all of grace, and the loving correction of God. I ask you to open a table of contents so you can find 2 Samuel. We're studying through the life of David. And 2 Samuel is the book we're going to be in. So if you've got your table of contents there in the Old Testament, you see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, which we studied through together, and then 2 Samuel. And you'll find a page number there. And I just want you to be finding 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want you to be able to read along with us. And the reason on several recent Sundays I've had a start at the table of contents is because I remember. I remember what it was like to go to church and they say, turn to the book of Ruth or turn to the book of Job. And I said, Job, it doesn't mean Job, it was Matthew. And I didn't know where any of them were and I felt like I was expected to know and nobody ever gave me the time to learn. Does that make sense? And so in the same way, man, if you've got to find the table of contents to find the books of the Bible, that is no problem but I want you to be able to see it for yourself. Second Samuel chapter 11. And we do this as a church family. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second Samuel chapter 11. And maybe you can already be thinking of it this way. As we, re- as we read this verse and think about it. What, what is a uh, part of this that is the loving, forgiving welcome of God. And then there's going to be a part of this that now in light of his love and grace, here is how I should live face the world. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and all his servants, all Israel. And they ravaged the Amorites and besieged them at Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Here's where we're headed. Here's what we're going to pray. Some of us in the room keep remaining in a place we probably should have never been to begin with, but we really need to hear God say, you need to come out of there. The time is now. Let's pray together and then study the word. Father, you are a good shepherd. You're faithful. You're merciful. You're kind. But in the whole counsel of God, you've not just rescued us from something, You've also commissioned us with a mission for something. And we want to be a people who deeply understand and live in light of both of those things. I am praying for every person here that is living in a place that you want to call them out of and away from. I'm talking about a place of of the soul. And whether they recognize it or not, they are heading for disaster that you would intervene this morning and change their trajectory and ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well you may be seated. I have a particular uh, person or disposition or or attitude in mind as we open to 2 Samuel 11 and I want to explain that by way of illustration. I was at the YMCA earlier this week and this is kind of how 
Uh, I'm trying to spend less and less time for the good of my soul on social media, but when I am on Instagram or Facebook, I get regular advertisements about diets and workout routines, all right? So that just lets you know what uh, they must think that I need to know about. So uh, one of the recent workouts that I heard about is called the 12-330. Anybody heard of the 12-330? Here's what the 12-330 is. You get on a treadmill and increase the incline to 12%. And then you set it for three miles an hour, and you do that for 30 minutes. And they say that's an effective way to uh, burn fat, which Instagram keeps telling me I need to do. So Julie and I were talking about it, and I mentioned that to her, and she went to the Y and did the 12-330 and came home, and man, she had obviously worked out. So the next day, I went and uh, lifted a few weights, and then I said, all right, I'm going to do the 12-330. And I got on there, and I started... And y'all, this is kind of, this is honestly what I was thinking. I was like, man, I must be in great shape. This is really causing me no stress or difficulty. I've been to the Y, I've been trying to eat better, and I started to think, man, this is, this is what I thought. Wow, I don't, know why, I don't know why Julie had such a hard time with this. this is... And so I'm about three minutes in, and I'm really starting to think, wow, I've got my wind up. And then my eye catches the speed on the panel. And whoever was before me had adjusted it, not to miles per hour, but kilometers per hour, which means I was doing the 1230 at about 1.8 miles per hour. Why am I telling you that? Number one, anytime that I think I'm accomplishing something, it's a warning light in my life. No, I'm really not. But to call to your mind this, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So a two-word summary for this morning's sermon is those words. We are going to take heed. 2 Samuel 11, you might have a little heading in your Bible above the chapter, and you'll see that it says David and Bathsheba. And you might know David's life well enough to know that, that this is the chapter that in great detail informs us of the worst mistake David ever makes. But I want you to know that David's mistake was not sudden. It was very gradual. And then it was sudden. Does that make sense? It's true. It's sudden at the end, but it's only sudden at the end. And David got to that end because of a series of gradual decisions that in the moment David made them do not feel like they are decisions that are headed for a downfall. So that's the title of the sermon, set up for a downfall, and we're only going to look at the first two verses. So let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. Take heed of what? Take heed of what we're going to talk about this morning together. Steps toward a a downfall. Let's observe on the front end that in 2 Samuel 11, David is not setting out to ruin his life or family. He doesn't wake up one day and say, you know what I think I'll do today is I'll take uh, a step and actually plunge my whole family and and really the whole kingdom of Israel into chaos. That's, That's not really how temptation works. He makes a series of gradual decisions. 
And in fact, they're decisions of such a nature that when you make them, you might even think you're doing a right or good thing. So let's start, do this, steps toward a downfall. Let's, let's start with number one, avoiding responsibility. Avoiding responsibility. That's always the first step towards a downfall. We read it at the front, at the beginning rather. Let's read it again, verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. It's the time of the year when the kings go out to battle. Real quick pop quiz question. Who's the king? David is. Who should be leading the army to battle? David should. But did you notice? David sends somebody else. Let's take a little bit more of a careful look at this. You're in 2 Samuel 11. If you just uh, turn back to 2 Samuel 8. Do you have little headings? You know, the headings aren't original to the writing of the Bible, but does anybody have a heading above 2 Samuel chapter 8? Anybody mind just saying that out loud? David's victories. 2 Samuel 9. David's kindness to Mephibosheth. That's what we studied together last time, this amazing act of grace that David extends to his enemy. And then chapter 10, David defeats Ammon in Syria. All that to say, when we get to 2 Samuel 11, how would you describe this season of David's life? We've been with David for a little while, right? We've been with him in the cave. We've been with him against Goliath. We've been with him through the chaos and the darkness. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. David's not there in 2 Samuel 11. He's at the pinnacle. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed. David's mid-40s, most likely. His kingdom is secure. Most of his enemies have been brought to bear. We, we would be able to say that David has finally reached a time when he says, I can relax. Well, friends, I want to tell you there's a difference between resting and relaxing. And your enemy is so persistent, you need to be very careful about ever relaxing. The winter, the winter, it's a time of preparation, it's a time of regrouping, it's a time of resting. And now when the spring is returning, that's the time to go to battle. But when it's time to go to battle, David decides he can let someone else do the fighting this time. I mean, on one hand, we can say, we kind of understand this. I mean, David's been fighting a long time. I mean, since he picked up the slingshot against Goliath, David's whole life has been about fighting. It's been nonstop. And David just gets to the point where it seems he says, it's somebody else's turn. And, and besides, hey, when David does hand off the responsibility, how does it go? They ravaged the Ammonites. So David can sit there and say, hey, might have been my responsibility to lead the army, but Joab did it, and I think it's going okay. Friends, the first step you'll ever take headed towards a downfall is when you avoid your responsibility. Here's what we have big picture with David, we'll get there, is we've got a man who wants to be king, who's avoiding his responsibilities, who's kicked back on the couch, whose life becomes 
one of drowning in lust. And when we just think about it that way, wow, 2024. How, how accurate that feels. Men who want to be kings, who avoid all their responsibilities. What's your responsibility? Can I give you a few responsibilities that you might be avoiding? First of all, we'll use David, but as we talk about David, we are also talking about ourselves. David's responsible for his own walk with the Lord. Hey, friends, nobody can seek the Lord on your behalf, in your place. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you can be prayed for, you can be encouraged, but the deciding of your life is given to you, and that is a huge gift, but it's also a significant responsibility. So if your life is kind of checked out spiritually, and your life is, honestly, if you took inventory this last week and there's more video games playing than seeking the Lord, then, then that's your decision. But you need to know that every decision propels you in a certain direction. There are no neutral decisions that are made. You're responsible for your walk with the Lord. And even that word responsibility, I hope to your soul that doesn't have a negative connotation. What we really need to see is every responsibility God gives you is an opportunity for blessing. If, by God's grace, you're walking in light of that responsibility. Do you see responsibilities as hindrances to really living or opportunities to really live? Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers, says the spiritual enemy wants to gain a toehold, turn it into a foothold, then that becomes a stronghold. And that's going to play out in David's life over the course of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the toehold is gained in your life when you begin to view your responsibilities as barriers instead of blessings. In my life, my responsibility is to be a husband. My responsibility is a dad. And then, of course, I have a responsibility as a pastor. But before all of those responsibilities, I have a responsibility, an opportunity to walk with God. And that is not burdensome. In fact, to walk with God is when the burdens are lifted. So, it is true, with every responsibility comes challenges. Of course. But in our sinful condition... What we really want are the blessings of being responsible without fulfilling the obligations of being responsible. Anybody want to say amen to that? It's a sinful condition. David, in other words, wants to sit in the palace without marching on the battlefield. So, for example, I am a dad, so I think through these things. Do you know what the worst thing you can do for a child is? especially when they're in that season of life that's moving from childhood into adulthood. And those are such significant years when that, when that happens. The, the worst thing you can do for a child in that season of life is give them the benefits of adulthood without any requiring of the responsibilities of adulthood. Say, so what are you getting at? Well, let's talk about it. Give them a phone, but don't hold them accountable for what they do on it. Friends, you have set a child up for catastrophe. And I'm just going to tell you, it's not even so much what a child goes looking for. It's what comes looking for them. Give them material blessings, but never make them sacrifice or pay for part of it. Don't ever let them be, don't, don't make them be accountable for what they do with the things that you give them. What you're teaching is that they get the things, 
the benefits of adulthood without any of the responsibilities of adulthood, and then therefore you've, you've removed the very motivation of them ever growing up into adulthood. So you sentence them to perpetual adolescence. Therefore, you'll put off adulthood as long as possible. Why wouldn't you when you've received all the benefits without requiring any of the responsibilities? Friends, God's a better parent than that. He blesses us with responsibilities, but there is no such thing as disobedience to your heavenly father without significant consequences. And I wish we could say the consequences only fall on you, but that's not how life works. David's decisions are going to have ramifications on so many lives. That's first of all, steps towards the downfall is avoiding responsibility. Number two is a withdrawing from accountability. There's no soul that's quite as in danger as the soul that says nobody can tell me what to do. That's what David does. David, springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now, we're going to walk through this in much more detail in the weeks to come, but I'm going to go on and tell you that uh, when you study the Bible, you want to pay attention to repeated words and phrases, and the verb sent will keep popping up in 2 Samuel 11. And 12, by the way. Go and look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan. Same word, right? And really this, this uh, entire uh, story is going to be bookended by those. David sends Joab, and here comes the consequences. And then the Lord's going to send Nathan. But in the midst of all that, David's going to send messengers and say, who is this woman? And then David's going to send to Joab. And then Joab's going to send Uriah. And then David's going to send Uriah home. And then David, and we could just, just pay attention. You'll see it over and over again. What I want you to know is you're accountable for your sending. You're accountable for your sending. Joab is the one man in David's life. Remember, David's the king. But Joab has been with David in the cave. Joab has been with David in the battle. Joab, we can kind of put it this way, is not a man to be messed with. I mean, Joab's probably the one person that David's got around him and said, man, if it really came to fists, I'm not sure I could take Joab. Joab is the one person in David's life who can call him to account. And what did David do? He sent him to the battle. Joab is as smart as David, as tough as David, and as competent as David. Hey, when Joab leads the army, when Joab leads the army, there's no drop in performance. They ravage the Ammonites. Proverbs 18.1. Listen to this very carefully. Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Hear it again. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire breaks out against all sound judgment. In other words, whoever cuts himself off from anybody else's input, anybody else's perspective, and begins to live as if uh, the only person who can tell me what to do is, is me, and I'll follow the desires of my heart wherever they might lead. You're setting yourself up for disaster. You're never going to get where you need to go by going there alone. You notice this about Jesus when he calls to the disciples. I'm not saying every time, but most every time. Well, I'll say two things. Most every time Jesus calls the disciples, he calls them in pairs. I'll take Simon and Andrew. I'll take James and John. But even when, on the occasion, for example, with Matthew, when he just calls Matthew, he's calling him into a group. Look around this morning. This Look around the room. This is your group. This is your church. One, one of the reasons that I'm encouraging you on a Sunday morning at 9.15 or a home group, if, if, uh, if that would be suitable, that you need to involve yourself in a smaller group of people 
is this reason. There's got to be somebody that you are accountable to. You need other people in your life who are trustworthy. You need other, other people in your life that you can be honest with. You need some people, friends, in your life who don't just affirm your decisions over and over, but hold you to account for your decisions. And say, is that really what you want to do? Is that really where you want to go? You don't need somebody who just all through your life says, yeah, way to go. All scripture is profitable for training and rebuke. So I will just go on and tell you, if you've only got friends who are only ever exhorting and never rebuking, you don't have friends who are immersed in God's word because God's word will rebuke you. So if you've got a worthwhile friend, he or she will too. And here's how it works. Sometimes you will be on the receiving end of a rebuke, and sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead you to rebuke. Kind of like uh, I was telling you earlier, when I get on Instagram, it's just workouts and diets. Why is that? Because those are obviously things I've demonstrated an interest in. And their, their responsibility is to try to get me to buy things, ultimately. And you don't, you don't need counselors that work that way in your life. Just mirror what you already desire. You need some people who say, you do that? You go there? You keep this up? We need people in our life who we don't order around. That's what David's going to do. Start ordering people around. Never corrected. Because we all seek to be king or queen. We can think about it this way. We all seek to be king or queen in our own way over our lives. You have counselors. Hey, can I say a word for just a moment? To husbands, husbands, if you've cultivated an environment in your home that your wife can never question your decisions or bring things up without immediately being shut down with hostility, you're not abiding in the Lord. You're not. And then, heaven help us, if you compound that attitude with quoting Scripture that the wife needs to submit to her husband. Can I give you the full context? Full context is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So when you want to demand the application while forfeiting the responsibility, you're headed for a serious fall, friends. I'm not talking about a fall in such a way, oh, I might get caught doing something. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're you're headed for a fall where God is not... God is not what you love most. You can get yourself trapped where you really love yourself most and sign God's name to it. That's the worst trap of all. Christ has never been harsh to the church. Christ faithfully serves and loves the church. You know the number one reason we hide from accountability? It's because we got things to hide. (laughs) The number one reason you need to have accountability is because you have things in your life you need to come out of. So I just want to be practical for a moment. You need two people in your life who have full permission to ask two questions, right? Two people that have permission in your life to ask two questions, and they're the two questions God asks. One at the start of the Old Testament and one at the start of the New Testament. First question is, where are you? Like, for real, where are you in life right now? And the second question Jesus asked his first disciples, what are you seeking? What are you really going after? 
When you look at your time that you spend, the money that you spend, the attention that you've given, what are you seeking in your life? You've got to have at least two people that you can have humble and honest answers to. It will be of no benefit to have find two people and they ask you those two questions and you lie, right? Or you just say, here's what I should say. No, what, what are you really seeking? So can we just think about it this way with David? If Joab had come to David in the springtime of the year, when David at some point says, David, uh, Joab, I'm sending you, and David was asked by Joab, where are you right now, David? Here might have been David's answer. I'm exhausted. I am tired. I am at a point in my life where I feel like I have done this enough. I do not want to be responsible this spring for leading the army. And then if Joab were to follow that up with, well, David, what are you seeking right now? Look in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. What are you seeking right now, David? My own agenda, my own comfort. Got to have somebody in your life who says, man, you're avoiding your responsibility, David. I get it. I get it. I understand. You are exhausted. Anybody would be able to understand that. But is this really what you want to do? Is this really what you want to do? Number three, ignoring opportunity. I take this from verse two. I'm sorry, verse one. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And we get this little phrase, but David remained at Jerusalem. What's this about? What this means is, you know, warfare at the time, you know, you meet out on the battlefield and, uh, and, and obviously what's happened is the, the, uh, the Ammonites were being ravaged. So they withdrew into their city. You know, cities had the walls around them. And so now Joab has set up a siege. Sieges can go on for months. Sieges can go on for years, depending on what kind of supplies they've got in the city wall. So what we're really getting at is there's a transition in the military campaign. And this gives David an opportunity to say, yeah, I didn't go with them at first, right? I should have let out the charge with them when they went, but I didn't. But now there's a pause in the fighting. And the implication is now David could start heading that way. And it wouldn't be best case scenario, but it'd be the right step to take now. It gives David an opportunity. Y'all, we haven't had the sudden crash yet. So there's an opportunity. Today, for you, this moment for you, as we're thinking about these things, might be an opportunity for you. You might be able to say today, yeah, man, I've tried to avoid responsibility. There's some things that I know God has entrusted to me that I've set them to the side and I've withdrawn from accountability. The state of my soul, hardly anybody else knows. In fact, nobody else knows because I am not accountable to anybody in my life. But now you've got an opportunity. You see the verb used there, David remained at Jerusalem. Can I tell you, you don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay where you are. Now, where you are is a result of collective decisions you've made, but you don't have to stay there. It's an open door for David, a moment of decision where he can get himself together and get out the door, or he can double down on a wrong decision. Luke 4, 13, after the temptation of Jesus. Listen to what the Bible says. The devil... When he had finished every temptation, departed from him until an opportune time. You hear that? 
Follow that up with, listen to 2 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the enemy is watchful for an opportune time. You have to be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that the enemy's goal for your life is that you'd be devoured. And y'all, David is about to be devoured, and he's not the only one. He departed for a more opportune time. What is an opportune time? Here's what an opportune time is. When desire and opportunity meet. So when it comes to these temptations, in fact, the temptations that David faces, sometimes you'll have the opportunity, but you won't have the desire. And sometimes you'll have the desire, but not the opportunity. But the opportune time, the sudden crash is when the opportunity and desire meet. What would David, now I know Second Peter is written after David's time, but, but if we think about it this way, what could David have been sober-minded and watchful about? This is a moment when I can get back on track. This is an opportunity that has come my way, but David remained in Jerusalem. We're tracking together. We got three. Three steps towards a fall. And then number four is this. He's lingering in inactivity. How many of you ever heard, had a grandma or grandpa who said, idleness is the devil's workshop? A lot of truth to that. And that statement is based on what happens here or seen like it. What's David doing? Just think about it for a moment. Joab and the army are out there fighting. And in verse 2, it happened late one afternoon, all right, when David arose from his couch. I know they didn't have televisions back then, but that's the posture we find of David. He's just like this. Streaming. This is, I can't find anything to stream. There's a 50,000 television show. I don't want to have anything. So there's nothing to watch. I'm going to just get up and walk. Lingering. In inactivity. He's just sitting around. He's just hanging out. Maybe he said, I'll just do this for a day, but a day's become a week, a week's become a month. Unfruitful. Hey, y'all, think about this with me. Maybe a little discouraged. Armies successful. They didn't even need me. Maybe he begins to feel a bit sorry for himself. And it's right here where desire and opportunity come together. Rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Y'all, it's only sudden at the end. David had already taken the steps. If falling off the edge of this stage is the sudden fall, there were decisions to be made back here. But David avoided responsibility, withdrew from accountability. What's next? He ignored opportunity to turn around, and then he just lingers in activity. And that's only at the end, that little shove, and he goes down. 
Who's this woman? David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, we don't even have a name. He sent all the accountability away. One said, going to do his best. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who we will find out in time, where's Uriah? On the battlefield where David should be. So we've talked about steps towards a fall. Take just a couple of minutes and say how to avoid a downfall. We'll do that next. Avoid a downfall. First of all, seek rest in the right place, in the right way, and in the right place. Hey, you really do need rest. You do. Life's exhausting. Life is taxing. You need one day a week, the Bible tells us, where your soul gets refocused and reoriented to hallowing the name of God. Keep the Sabbath holy, right? You have a day of, of rest where you devote that day, not just to sitting around, but to worshiping with your church family, to thinking through, where am I? To answering those questions. Where are you? What are you seeking? Read soul-nourishing books. Meditate on God's Word. Be active. Be intentional. Cast off slothfulness and put on zeal. We live in a culture that far cares more about cultivating the body than cultivating the soul. Physical fitness is of some value, the Bible says that, but godliness is beneficial for all things. We are not saved by works, friends, but you are saved to work. Second, be accountable to trustworthy friends who keep you rooted under God's loving authority. Who is it in your life, if you spend time with them, you're just refreshed in the Lord? Paul said that of, is it Onesimus or Onesiphorus? That'd be really hard if they were in the same room, Onesimus, Onesiphorus. But one of them, he said, often refreshed me. Who do you have in your life that when you're with them, all right, you might talk some weather and sports and so on and so forth, but you talk about Jesus. So I, I find that this won't just happen. You actually have to ask you have, to have a, you have to purpose to meet. You need to have, hey, the first Monday of the month circled and nothing else gets there. 6 a.m., we're meeting, not just meeting for coffee, we're meeting in person. Hey, y'all, this kind of friendship, I'm just going to go on and tell you, cannot be texted. It has to be in person, face-to-face. Not about affirmation, it's about accountability. Third, pray God will help you be zealous for His name. Zealous for his name. God's not just saved you from something. He has saved you for something. To have zeal for his name, for his glory. As Paul prayed to the Philippians, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Hey friends, there's some things that the world, whole world around you would say, that's excellent. But the Holy Spirit would say, no, it's not. Have discernment. And then fourth, avoid spiritual laziness at all costs. Y'all, people who are not alive unto God will do just about anything to feel alive. Say that again. People who are not alive unto God will do just about anything to feel alive. And most everything we do to feel alive is deadly to ourselves and others. So when, we, when we're spiritually lazy, we're more likely to believe the enemy's lies. What are some of the lies that David can be believing here in verses 1, 2, and 3? David, it's just one time. You deserve. Whew, you better be careful when you hear 
this word coming to your soul. You deserve a break. David, nobody will ever find out. David, I don't even know how to articulate this one because he's already gone down this disobedient road already. David, your wives aren't really meeting your needs. David, nobody else really knows how much pressure there is in being a king. David's a great sinner. And so are we. That's why we need a savior. In the springtime of the year, when kings go out to battle, Friends, you have a king, and his name is Jesus, and he did not send somebody else to the battle. Now he went. Not actually his responsibility, if you want to think about it. He didn't sin, but he went, and he sacrificed. And when he withdraws on that night, it's not out of accountability, he withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in agony... Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? But there is no other way. He's the king who does not send someone else in his place. And we can also say he is the king who has ravaged his enemies. Sin, death, and the grave are utterly defeated. And it was late one afternoon... Jesus doesn't arise from the couch sitting around. It's late one afternoon. He cries from the cross. It is finished. He is the true and better king. It's in him you find true rest. Better than you'll ever find sitting around on a couch or in an illicit relationship or in casting aside your responsibilities. In him you will find your most trustworthy friend and your deepest accountability. But let me say, the surest way to have Jesus as your truest accountability is not in seeking him on your own, but seeking him together with other followers of Jesus. Those who seek Jesus on their own quickly put their words in his mouth that he never said to justify their own desires. In him, in Jesus, you will not find inactivity, but vigorous action to love and help others. As he rescues us. Hey, that's the king I want to follow, amen? First step to following that king is confessing readily, I'm not the king. I'm not in charge. Better, better, better to submit to him now. Because friends, everybody's going to. Haven't gotten there yet, but here's what's coming in Philippians. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though very in the, being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in conclusion... This is the trap, y'all. This is the trap. Closing illustration. You know a Super Bowl, and I got a thing with Super Bowls. Got this book right here. Super Bowl. Somebody gave me this as a gift. I haven't talked to anybody about this on the front end, 
but the Super Bowl, 1966 to 2023, those are the seasons. So I just need one volunteer. This is not going to hurt anybody in any way. I just need one volunteer. Raise your hand. Sam, raise your hand. Sam, I want you to, we haven't talked about this, right? You want to come up? Oh, Sam's bold. All right. Sam, you come right here. Stand with me. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You did it. You committed. Let's do it. This is going to be good. Sam, you've been so bold. I'm going to invite another volunteer. Can I get one more volunteer? Christian. Christian, come right on up. We have not talked about this, right? No. You don't even know what I'm going to ask, do you? All right. I want you to give me a year between 1966 and 2023. Any year. 2019. That's just four years ago, right? Yeah. So in January 2019, the New England Patriots, actually February, sorry, let me get my, the New England Patriots, guy named Tom Brady, they beat the Los Angeles Rams in the Super Bowl. Did you know that? No. no now you do. All right, Christian, any year, 1966, 2023, any year. Oh, that was the one we just gave, 2019. 2018. Okay. Give them give give applause. They did an awesome job. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're just doing the modern ones. That was the Philadelphia Eagles beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Here's, here's kind of the deal. This is the one thing that I know that I know. Pretty pathetic, isn't it? You could name any year, and I will tell you who won the Super Bowl that year. But here, here's the shocking thing. This is Actually, it's not going to be a shocking thing to you. You've never played a down. Did you know this? No lingering injuries. No effect. All I've done is watched and read about the Super Bowls. I have a knowledge that comes through watching, not a knowledge that comes through doing. As a matter of fact, I listened a couple of times this this week to players who have played in the Super Bowl, and they got their own dates wrong. I'm correcting them. They're like, oh, that was the 1994 game. I was like, dude, no, it's not. That's the 1992 game. What? <laughs> Biggest trap in the world. A knowledge through watching mistaken for a knowledge from doing. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. So here's the biggest trap. You are here today. And the scripture is profitable. It's been laid out for you in a way that the Holy Spirit could use and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Warning light going off. I've withdrawn from accountability. I'm not fulfilling responsibility. I'm ignoring opportunity. Yeah, true. And then go out and convince yourself you heard from God, nodded your head, and then didn't do it right? It's always a cost that comes in doing. But I'm going to conclude in this way. Friends, there is also a significant cost in not doing. Ultimate cost would be you forfeit your own soul. It's not just knowledge. Paul says, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. That's what I want for you, that on that day you'll be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Is there something that God said to you through his word that you're taking some steps towards a downfall, that in a loving way 
He wants you to know so that you could repent and return to the rightful King Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll pray together as we respond together to the Lord. Father, for everyone in the room that has set aside their God-given responsibility as followers of Jesus to abide in Christ, of course, you help us with that. I'm not suggesting that it's exclusively our responsibility, but there are things that we do. Decisions we make, actions we take, things we don't do. Lord, would you refresh us that abiding in you is better, is better, far better than living in any other way. Father, would you refresh the souls of those Those of us in the room who are withdrawing from accountability, could you give us help that at Calvary we're cultivating that kind of godly, Christ-honoring friendships that people we really can look one another in the eye and say, where are you? And get an honest and humble answer as we ourselves who ask that question are willing to give honest and humble answers. Not complaint sessions, but seeking God times together. Father, I'm asking in Jesus' name if there is an open door of opportunities for those of us in the room this morning who've taken some steps in the wrong direction, not to take everyone, but instead of remaining in that situation like David did, we would come to our senses, repent. And Father, for those in the room that are just lingering day after day in inactivity, their souls are starving for godly things. Lord, help us have an appetite for good things, for godly things, not stuck in ongoing inactivity. Thank you that we have a King, the Lord Jesus, who's fought the battle, ravaged the enemy, rules and reigns in glory and triumph, and is soon coming again. May may he be exalted right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.